I was thinking, um, you were talking about something earlier that caught my attention, which was something to the effect of each kind of uh, historical era or epic or you know however you want to define divide up the time the time space mm-hmm. uh, in modern especially in modern history has kind of like uh, brings into view uh, an idea of what it is to be human and you know you said that the what was revealing about that flood mm-hmm. you know hitting the the poor areas on the outskirts of town is mm-hmm. is the kind of nakedness with which elites were describing what they wanted to do and how that the kinds of opportunities that the flood presented mm-hmm. and i was i was wondering if we could leap into a bit of the present moment in mexico but looking you know using the the historical framing as kind of a lens um, because I, I feel like in the United States and in some ways in Mexico as well, definitely in in other countries in Brazil, you know, we've kind of seen this resurgence of uh, authoritarianism, and there is a there's a real nakedness to the discourse now uh, that I that I don't believe we have seen for a while, at least in some places. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, if you could kind of look looking back to look to the present, if you could kind of talk a little bit about that in, in Mexico. So we have Andres uh, Manuel Lopez Obrador as president. Uh, he is part of the left and in part of the kind of a very traditional kind of left in Mexico, mm-hmm. dating back to the time of the institutional revolutionary party, the PRI. Mm-hmm. But there is a, there's a kind of a particular understanding of, you know, the populace of Mexico that I think is emerging and in and around his uh, administration, and maybe you could just talk a little bit about that in the lens of cultural history. Yeah, well, it's that's that's a very very uh, kind of complex question. Uh, but I, I the first thing that's I, why it took I, you so long to ask it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, I think we we not sure how how brief we need to be, but uh, <laughs> we have time. Yeah. So so as I said, the first thing that I strike me when you mention this kind of trying to do a parallelism between, you know, that time and our current time is uh, social Darwinism. Uh, I, I remember to identify these uh, specific discourses. I, I digged into many, many uh, works by Europeans and American philosophers and also Mexican philosophers like Gabino Barreda, who were talking about all these um, perception of society as a, you know, kind of anatomic body in which every part is supposedly the same important, but we need to accept that there in the social body, there's a head, there's a heart, there are hands, there are legs, right? But usually the legs and, you know, the working parts are obviously the lower classes and they need to accept to be directed by the head. So it's kind of, it's, it's, uh, it's an exercise of understanding authority, right? And it's at some point you ended up that, uh, ended up thinking and understanding that no matter what time in history you are, there's a legitimation behind the authority principle. So in that in that way, it's very interesting to understand how in 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 a particular time you see that justification, that legitimation constructed through discourse. So right now it's a very I'm not sure how to say it's a very very chaotic um, time in history because and I, I perceive this 
so many years ago in the new generations that came to the classroom as students, right? Many of them had no perception of history. And I see, I, I say perception in the very sense common of sensitivity, like a physical memory, because none of us had uh, been in a war by, by ourselves. None of, none of us experienced, you know, shortage of goods in the stores or products as people in, in, the, in World War II, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that basically puts history in the books and makes it, makes it irrelevant for most of the people. Maybe not for historians, but but, right. most but there's of not the that that's not that common experience of a of a major event. You're saying exactly. So that that experience transform your perception of the world because you put at odds many things. So this pandemic is only comparable with the uncertainty that war brings to society. Mm-hmm. In that, you're in talking that, about the. Sorry to interrupt you. You're talking about the COVID nineteen, the current. Exactly uh, the COVID nineteen that we are right now uh, in this lockdown and social distancing practice. So, so basically, people without knowledge of history encounter this populist discourse more attractive than people who knows history, because people who knows history knows that we have heard this before. You, have, you can find even similarities between the discourses of Andrés Manuel López Obrador with Echeverria or with, uh, you know, or probably President Trump with some president uh, in history in, in, in the U.S. or in Brazil, right, mm-hmm. with Bolsonaro. It's the same. But the new voters are not immune to those type of discourse, discursive constructions that not necessarily have to do with reality, more with an interest for power and ambition or certain interest to transform society, not necessarily for the good, for but for the interests of a certain sector of the population. So this is this is this is right now, I think the pandemic can be one of uh, our catalyzers for the new generations to experience this like a physical pain that we haven't uh, feel ourselves you know like uh, this real fear about losing what you have losing uh, losing access to think but also in the conservative mind also kind of preventing people to raise or people to right now for example and we are may 12 <laughs> it's uh in mexico yesterday uh, the president lopez obrador passed a new decree on this legislation about you know bringing the army and the navy join the national guard of mexico and given the, given them uh, faculties to do uh, home search to apprehensions, basically do them the access to do police uh, activities, mm-hmm. which in many ways may lead to a militarized regime. Right. So this is this is something that at least myself never imagined could happen. Mm-hmm. But if in you Mexico. review the 19th century, <laughs> you can see that certainly it's possible. It's not without precedent exactly. in Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I responded. 
the question. Oh no, that was that's excellent. I, th- I really think that your uh, your example is very apt. Um, your illustration is very apt. And that's the question I keep asking myself. You know, I um, I've lived and worked in Mexico, and I've done a lot of historical uh, research in different archives, and you know, all almost all of my research is in Mexico, and. Uh, so I have, you know, I, I, I have a fairly strong sense of what you're talking about. And Lopez Obrador is an interesting figure because uh, obviously he has come up through the ranks of, you know, the of populism and through the ranks of the, the pre-party and then was in the PRD. Uh, and now his, you know, at some point he formed his own party, Morena. And finally, after what, three tries became president, two tries became president of Mexico, and it's so interesting to see the kind of the the difference between his rhetoric mm-hmm. uh, and his action in Mexico. I see that gap in his presidency to loom very large, and I feel like it, in some ways it took me somewhat by surprise. Not, not that I had hopes that uh, Obrador was going to change everything in Mexico. You know that was wrong with you know the, all of the problems that Mexico was facing at that time, but. He is just so much less effective as a leader than I thought, and it's 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 most it's it's pretty shocking in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I totally concur with you, and um, you know, it's uh, putting aside any type of um, you know political phobias or phobias, right? I concur with you that uh, the image many of us had about him as a leader, uh, as an administrator, uh, you know, kind of many of us put our hopes in his experience as an administrator of Mexico City, one of the largest city in Mexico and one of the largest of the world, right? And, and he was really effective on that. And, and yes, I concur that once you see right now what, you know, the way he's talking to the people and, and the way he approaches kind of progressive topics of the agenda right now. I, and I'm just going to mention one example. Before the kind of the pandemic fears unfolded, like in March, uh, you remember that Mexico was kind of on the edge of uh, kind of social unrest, you know, or protesting, you know, around these uh, women uh, violations of rights, right? Human rights for women and these feminicide controversies that were going all over the place in Mexico. And women were taking the streets to protest. And López Obrador, when they did like this massive protest nationally in Mexico, he barely mentioned it in his mañanera, his uh, press morning press conference right so it this this was shocking to me because i was expecting a president as you said coming from the left i had supposedly (laughs) coming from the left uh, basically ignored you know this one of the most progressive left struggles in all these groups so i was totally shocked and and i remember this essay by don't remember the author of this essay released just right after Lopez Obrador won the presidency. Uh, but he said, Lopez Obrador, you know, with Lopez Obrador, the extreme left of Mexico didn't won. The left that won with Lopez Obrador is the left that has been marginalized within the pre system, mm-hmm. which is not the same. It was, for me, it was striking to see, you know, when Lopez Obrador took possession in power that basically the person who inducted him with the presidential ban was Porfirio Muñoz Ledo, 
the same guy who was, who in, <laughs> who inducted as president as Lopez Port to Lopez Portillo. Oh, I see. So it, it made totally sense to me that it's not the left, it's not the extreme left in the national politics who took power. It's the left within the pre who took mm -hmm. power. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, mm -hmm. of course. Well, I, I'd like to turn a little bit uh, our discussion now in the minutes that we have remaining. Um, I actually would I'd love to talk more about Lopez Obrador. <laughs> but I, but I do want to... Maybe we can organize another one only on Mexican uh, politics. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. There's so much to talk about there, of course. I would like to turn now to your current uh, work as director of Me SBS's Mexico Initiatives Program. Uh, and also find out how your current research is, is folding into that and the ways that you're also working with others around the University of Arizona campus uh, on, on research projects. Uh, basically, you know, the, this uh, Office of uh, Social and Behavioral Sciences Mexico Initiatives was created in the fall of 2016 and was established by, uh, by two people, Dr. Uh, J.P. Jones III, Dean of Social Sciences, and also Professor Scott Whiteford, uh, who was a former head of the Center for Latin American Studies and who was about to retire back then. And he, he took this uh, invitation by the dean as an effort to you know, consolidating his legacy in, and his contributions to the University of Arizona and also to kind of show the the huge love he has for Mexico and the interaction with Mexico and Mexican academics. So it's basically was established to consolidate, you know, collaborative efforts on the social and behavioral sciences with Mexico. And we basically became one of a sort of point office between the college of college of social sciences with academic institutions, organizations, scholars, students, and communities of Mexico. And, Obviously, it's a huge uh, duty for a small office, although our purpose was kind of creating this sustainable and uh, plan for collaboration. Obviously, there has been so many challenges uh, on this because um, certainly uh, College of Social and Behavioral Sciences is a very complex unit and it uh, brings together so many different backgrounds and so many so many difference in the centers and academic units and departments and schools and just to give you an idea you know you know uh, around 500 600 uh, faculty within SBS around 80 90 people you know they have something to do with Mexico and research on um, they have at least partially touch research with Mexico and the border. So, and we, we, we did, you know, a list of these scholars that we call experts on Mexico, and we primarily rely on them in terms of kind of promoting our programs in Mexico. Why? Because if, you know, if, if, if some students come from Mexico to study, let's say, engineering or hard sciences, physics, whatever, right? Uh, you can do physics wherever you are in the world. You can do, well, obviously you look for the top technology to do certain experiment, or if you need to do certain thing or certain application that need a specific chemical element or whatever, obviously you need to look for the top advantages on your field. 
But in the case of uh, of scientists that focus on on society, right, and coming from Mexico, it's it's hard to you know for me as as a historian it was really hard to justify why coming to the U of A to study history of Mexico if I was in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. Yeah. So obviously. And that's that's kind of the type of capacity we need to promote in Mexico, saying, you know, the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences is one of the top units around the world with the most amount of, you know, expertise, expert, uh, experts on Mexico, on the Mexican society and the border society. So that brings an entire possibility to promote those capacities. And obviously, we already have many collaborations in place. You know, there are so many centers here. The Center for Latin American Studies has a huge tradition, a very long tradition of collaboration with Mexico that keeps going. Uh, You have amazing elements there that are already interacting with indigenous people in Mexico, with centers, with students, with uh, organizations. Also, you know, you find the same in Mexican-American studies when you have real deep connections between faculty members with other than their researchers. So basically, we are a resource for the faculty. Mm-hmm. Right, we we are a tool for them. If they if they need us, we can certainly approach governments. We can certainly approach um, stakeholders in Mexico, and we certainly do even some you know basic legal assistance if there are some specific things that you know need to some consultation in dealing with a specific regulations of academia in Mexico. That type of stuff, it's, it's a way to support uh, the College for Social and Behavioral Sciences. And, and that's why we basically focus on collaborative research, outreach, student recruitment, and we also assist a little bit with, uh, with, with some Mexico curriculum, right? I, I, I teach some classes. And also, my, my, I use... I have been using my own research to basically as a tool, right, for promoting for promote collaboration with uh, with Mex- Mexican scholars. And this is with um, scholars from the National Autonomous University of Mexico and the Colegio de San Luis. Do you yes, yeah, exactly. It's a, you know we have a, a very big network for to to work uh, with Mexican institutions. Uh, the first idea of the of the office was also kind of being the first point office uh, in the college with UNAM. Uh, UNAM is the autonomous university of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, which is one of the largest of the Latin America of Latin America and the largest in Mexico. And the fact that we have the opportunity of having one international representation office of UNAM here on, on campus in, uh, in Tucson, that, that was the, the first idea probably of the Dean of Social Sciences to have this office to kind of channeling the efforts and also interacting with them. They are very active. They uh, bring a lot of opportunities and a lot of interesting scholars, directives, officials to campus. So it was a way to get the college access to those channels in order to basically take advantage of those in terms of collaboration. But besides UNAM, uh, we also have a a strong relationship with the Sonoran institutions, uh, Unison, Colegio de Sonora, 
uh, CIALT, and also universities in Mexico, like University of Sinaloa. And as you, as you mentioned, El Colegio de San Luis has been one of the, the top uh, institutions uh, interacting with us, obviously, because I have and a strong connection with them, but they have been willing to interact in many ways. They have been receiving our professors, uh, our directives, and even even you was there last year. Uh, so they, they have been very supportive in many of our initiatives. And, you know, part of my research in the last seven years have been connected with the cultural heritage field. And, and that's how I, I started to be you know, fascinated by the cultural connections between Mexico and the U.S. here in the borderlands. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, you know, I invited and, you know, a group of faculty to form a group to start you know, first point, pinpointing ideas, but also trying to create certain synergy uh, that was really interdisciplinary between mm-hmm. us and this group was called the on the edge project and we have been doing some activities uh with, with institutions uh, on these areas that basically open up other fields right mm-hmm. yeah I've, I've definitely seen uh for several scholars here that your efforts have been have been really helpful for mine included of course because i was in, involved in a group of U.S. scholars who uh, traveled to San Luis Potosí last summer uh, to, to visit with scholars there. And, and we are uh, currently working on um, a series of publications, I believe, although we're uh, kind of everything is a little slow right now in the time of COVID. Exactly. <laughs> but it, it, is, it, it is one of the things that has kept me at this university is the, the strength of the ties uh, between um, University of Arizona and Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the Southwest Center as well, we have a long tradition of collaboration with scholars from Mexican institutions, including UNAM and the Colegio de Sonora. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, as a kind of a final question here, um, I, I'm wondering in this moment, everything is kind of on hold, but there are, are both sorts of you know big kinds of barriers, I guess uh, you could say, to our abilities to research going forward right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also some different opportunities that are arising to uh, to understand what's happening around us. And I'm just wondering what all of that in the context of SBS's Mexico initiatives uh, means for the work that you're doing going forward. Yes, well, definitely. I think um, our work has been impacted immediately by, by the travel restrictions as, you know, as an office basically dedicated to enhance and promote, um, you know, our, our good relation abroad. Uh, it's one of the, these restrictions certainly limit our, at first, in, in, uh, at least in the first moment, you know, limited our capability to interact internationally. But as you said, you know, this presents a set of opportunities in my, in, in my view. Uh, one of them is that, you know, gladly I have, been invited to you know to attend or to be guest lectured to classes in Mexico in these days because each class is now through uh, internet right so you know it's now a, a video call or any other platform you we are using it's way easier for me to be present in Mexico so that brings another dimension right uh, in terms of budgetary struggles i think certainly we all all of us we need to do adjustments to the the plans that we already had in the kitchen right and we need to adapt 
to those. And certainly I'm, I'm right now trying to see and trying to plan the next uh, academic year, uh, basically relying in these interactions virtually. And also uh, that brings a lot of synergy and a lot of empathy also in our institutions uh, in Mexico because they are facing similar situations. Mm -hmm. So uh, as you said, I think everything is a matter of um, adaptation. And the University of Arizona uh, has been a champion of adapting every time. I mean, this even this land, I mean, this territory, it's a territory for territory of adaptation and desert, and you know. So I think every of us uh, are doing our effort to trying to catch up with what is coming about this new scenario, right? That the pandemic brought, and I'm hopeful that we can continue contributing uh, with our work to support our units in SBS. Well, Luisa, I have one final question for you. What are you reading right now? And do you have any uh, book recommendations now that we're all sort of stuck at home? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, I, I think it's uh, a wide variety of of, of books. Um, but I'm 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 reading right now. I'm doing a sort of introspection. So besides uh, the stuff I'm I'm re reviewing for editing a manuscript for my next book. Uh, there's there's a, a work that it's probably you'll take me by uh, um, um, this uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say it, uh, esoteric thing. It's it's a it's a kind of a novel. It's but it's it's a history by C. M. Mayer. It's it's called Metaphysical Odyssey into the Mexican Revolution, and it's a uh, it's an analysis of, of Francisco I. Madero's secret book. It's an spiritualist manual and it's it, it brings a lot of mixture between fantasy but a lot of facts and archival research this lady did on around francisco madero encounter with this spiritism uh so i really recommend it i mean for historians or for people and also i have been reading a lot of literature kind of distancing myself a little bit at least for some weeks of academic reading so i have been reading um i don't know if you're familiar with the works by carlos castañeda mm -hmm. i sure am so in my last trip to san luis potosí i had the opportunity to go to uh, the sacred lands of the huichol indigenous um, community the way where they pilgrim every year from Nayarit to San Luis Potosí in Real de Catorce. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I had a very, I don't know, it's a very incredible experience by, you know, reaching the Cerro del Quemado hill. And I wasn't expected that type of experience. I, I got back to Tucson trying to find ways to connect and reconnect the spirituality with the desert and with traditions, right, in the desert. And in that way, I think San Luis Potosí and Tucson are so close, are culturally and spiritually very close. So I have been reading those and, and getting back to my old, you know, readings of Jose Vasconcelos and, and other things that I'm, I'm revisiting this in these times. Wow, that's excellent, Luis. So interesting. I would love to talk a little bit more about that trajectory. Um, I... When I lived in Mexico um, in the mid to late 90s, at the very end of my stay there, um, I started picking up 
Carlos Castaneda's books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I went through uh, most of them, actually. And of course, there's all the you know controversy, controversy around him about exactly. his ma- having made up the stories. And but uh, you know, all of that aside, there is a lot of in, of, of um, I don't know, very interesting material in those books. Exactly. And it didn't just come from nowhere. You know what I mean? He didn't it, it invent it de la nada. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. You know. And so I took a I took a tour. I had a really close friend. Um, from Mexico City, who came up to, to live with us in Sonora for about a year. Mm-hmm. She's from uh, Coyacan. She grew up in Coyacan, and um, she is uh, kind of took up with a, a band of roving band of hippies when she was young, and <laughs> just you know, is kind of a gypsy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But she to- told me a lot about having lived uh, in Real de or near Real de Catorce, uh-huh. leaving out, taking out, or leaving from the um, west side of the town and, you know, going down to the desert floor there, that long road mm-hmm. you take out of there. And so I had it in my mind that I wanted to um, to have that experience and, and see that desert before I, um, before I left Mexico. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, it was kind of my swan song. And I I, I traveled to Real and um, spent a couple of nights there and then packed up a little backpack and walked out into the desert. And I had just this magical uh, couple of nights um, spent out in the desert. And uh, so I know I know a little bit about what you're talking about here. And I'd love to I'd love to talk more about that. So perhaps we can leave that for our next interview. Yeah, it, it would be wonderful. And yeah, as you said, it's, well, at least for me, it was a transformative experience because mm-hmm. even, you know, being originally from San Luis Potosí and traveling oftenly to Real de Catorce, this was uh, the first time I encountered a different type of mysticism around. So I, I, I totally agree with you. And yeah, I, I would love to to continue this conversation. Um, I, I, I didn't talk about my research in the in the PhD uh, <laughs> which yeah, we didn't me, make it there, which, did we? <laughs> which would take me a long long uh, time but uh, but yeah I really really appreciate this opportunity Jeff uh, to be in contact with uh, with the public of the Journal of the Southwest and the, the Southwest Center I really appreciate uh, this opportunity well Luis Coronado it's been a pleasure to speak with you today thank you so much thank you so much Jeff.